Hello, and uh, welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I am joined today by Jonathan Spire to co-host this webinar. For our viewers, please, should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question at any point during this discussion. I will now turn the discussion over to Jonathan to introduce our guest. Thank you, Stacey. And uh, we are, I think, very lucky uh, today to have uh, with us uh, Dr. Yuval Steinitz, who's going to be speaking to us about a fascinating episode uh, in which he was uh, deeply involved, namely the process by which Israel discovered uh, the existence of a secret Syrian uh, nuclear project, and then, of course, went on to destroy that project through air action in September of 2007. Dr. Steinitz is a philosophy professor by background, but served he served as a Minister of Finance Minister of Energy and Minister of Intelligence, also in Israeli governments over the last uh, decades. And he was also uh, chair or chairman of the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee of the Knesset. And this was the position which he held at the time when the process began of Israel's discovery of the uh, secret Syrian nuclear program about which he's going to talk. So uh, the process will be that Dr. Steinitz will speak for uh, around 15 minutes, and then we'll have some time for questions and answers and discussion. So uh, I hope Dr. Steinitz is on the line, and if so, uh, I invite him to begin his uh, his uh, address now. Thanks. Hello, good evening from Jerusalem. It's now nine o'clock here in Mevaser Zion, a suburb of Jerusalem, and I'm very happy to join the Middle East Forum in this uh, uh, discussion of recent history. So I, I, I didn't listen, but uh, okay. just uh, give me instructions, or uh, because I just joined in. Yeah, if you could, uh, Dr. Steins, if you could speak for fifteen minutes about the subject in question, and then we'll have time for questions and answers following that. Thanks. Ah, okay. So the subject in question, as I understand it, is uh, the rule of the uh, Knesset, Israel Parliament. Uh, um, the Knesset Committee on Defense and Foreign uh, Relations in the, in the intelligence uh, discovery of the Syrian nuclear project. And the story take me, uh, takes us uh, almost 20 years, not 20, 18 years ago. I became chairman of the Knesset uh, Committee of uh, Defense and Foreign Affairs Committee of, at the beginning of 20 of 2003, uh, just two months before the American war in Iraq. And like uh, United States and like Britain, also here in Israel, we were informed by our intelligence community, the IDF intelligence and the Mossad, that uh, Saddam Hussein still uh, have in his possession uh, weapons, of, uh, weapons of mass destruction, mainly chemical uh, weapons, a serene nerves gas, and uh, between 50 and 100 long-range ballistic missiles that can carry such weapons uh, 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 over uh, Iraq and Jordan uh, to Israel. And of course, we made all the preparations. We produced several million gas masks uh, to distribute to actually to 9 million Israelis, to all our citizens. We call some reserve units, uh, and we made all the preparation to intercept the incoming missiles and to defend ourselves. 
And then uh, the war was over. And to our amazement, and to the amazement of almost everybody, also in the United States, in Britain, and in the entire world, uh, Iraq was totally captured by American and British uh, forces. And they found no one missile and not even one uh, little bottle with uh, nerve gas. And uh, what was even more important that, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, thousands of uh, uh, prisoners of war were investigated by, by, from uh, the Iraqi military and uh, nobody testifies that he was part of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of uh, weapon uh, of mass destruction units or storage or anything like that. It's actually became evident that there was nothing there. And uh, as the chairman of the new chairman of the committee, I took uh, uh, the decision. It took me two months after in, in April 2003 to establish investigation committee, inquiry committee, uh, to, to investigate this intelligence failure. No doubt it was a very serious failure of the Israeli intelligence community, but also of uh, the United States and, uh, and uh, all Western intelligence uh, services. And I decided that although we were not uh, directly involved in this war and we didn't uh, lose even one soldier or one citizen, uh, this is uh, serious enough and I have to make a thorough investigation, not in order to point to somebody or you know, to blame somebody, I made it crystal clear from the beginning that I'm again against blaming people even after failures, but only in order to draw conclusions and to see how we can improve ourselves and what can we learn from this accident. So I established the committee uh, based on the subcommittee on uh, intelligence and secret services. And uh, we began to uh, to work on, on, on this issue. Meanwhile, um, uh, several weeks after we started uh, uh, the work of the commission, uh, it came to our knowledge that Libya have, uh, had a nuclear project of its own, and we were totally unaware of it. It were the British, the MI6, the British intelligence, that discovered it almost by, almost by occasion. Yeah, they intercepted a ship that was uh, delivering some equipment to Tripoli in Libya. And once they, um, they opened uh, the, um, uh, the containers on this ship that came, I think, from Malaysia uh, to Libya, they discovered the uh, centrifuge for the enrichment of uranium, and uh, they informed the Americans. And together, uh, at the beginning, clandestinely, uh, uh, United States and Britain began to speak with uh, Libya in order to force it, to pressure it, to dismantle its uh, a nuclear project that was already in a, in a significant stage of, of, of of uh, construction. Uh, the problem from our perspective was that we were not uh, aware of it 
unless we were informed by the Americans that were informed by the Brits. And I immediately added this to as a sub, uh, as another subject, as a secondary subject to this inquiry committee, also to try to understand what was wrong. How could it happen that a, a very hostile Arab state with a very crazy leader like Muammar Gaddafi then was trying to develop nuclear weapons and we were unaware of, of it. Anyhow, during our work on, on Iraq and on Libya, yeah, in Iraq we overestimated, there were no uh, weapons of mass destruction. In Libya, we were, it's not underestimate, we, we, we were totally unaware that something is going on. I discovered that our intelligence uh, uh, um, uh, toward uh, non-conventional weapons programs and especially toward potential or possible nuclear project is, um, is, um, uh, uh, is lacking, is, is not perfect, is far from being perfect. And there is no, uh, and I came to the conclusion that we need specific doctrine, intelligence doctrine, a new intelligence doctrine in order uh, to uh, monitor and to explore and to discover a, a, a secret nuclear projects uh, in the Middle East. And uh, in few months, it took me another few months and I cannot elaborate everything. We have had some pieces of intelligence. I, I can speak about one piece. One piece uh, where was uh, speaking about uh, experts or delegation from North Korea that visited Syria a few years before, but nobody took it uh, seriously in our intelligence community. Uh, I came to the conclusion, you know, everybody were looking at the Iranian nuclear project already in 2003. It was uh, one year after somebody exposed the huge underground bunkers in, uh, in Kashan or Natanz. And in 2003, everybody were, our intelligence uh, community, and I think also the United States and the European uh, intelligence services, everybody looked at Iran. It was already well known and clear that Iran is trying to produce nuclear weapons and some negotiation between the peace three, the European countries, powers, Britain, France, and Germany, between them and Iran already started about freezing the program. And also the Israeli community was totally focused, speaking about nuclear threats on Iran. And uh, I came to the conclusion that it's highly probable that not only Iran, but Syria is also trying to produce nuclear weapons. Uh, there were some pieces of data, but not nothing conclusive. But uh, the main argument was a logical reasoning. I told myself first that it will be very reasonable for Assad, for Syria to try to gain nuclear weapons because of all the rumors about the Israeli capabilities because Syria, after the peace with Egypt and Jordan, Syria actually left alone vis-a-vis -vis mighty Israel. 
And uh, I told myself, if somebody would tell me that they were trying and failed because they don't have the techni- technological capabilities and they don't have the resources, yeah, they are not as rich as Iran or Libya or Iraq, I would accept it. But uh, to tell me that they, will never, that they never tried even, it looked to me a little bit uh, problematic. What was more significant even that Assad, also Hafez al-Assad, but more often Bashar al-Assad, his son, the new president of Syria, spoke about his uh, aspiration, his, his, his plan to gain a strategic balance or strategic deterrence vis-a-vis Israel. And this was, uh, I reiterated it once and again. In Israel, everybody said, ah, he, mean, he meant to chemical uh, weapons with ballistic missiles. He, he mean chemical weapons in order to balance the rumors yeah, that I cannot uh, verify or this or, or this verify about the Israeli nuclear capabilities. And I say to myself, this doesn't sound to me because he said that he aspired or he wished to gain a strategical balance with Israel. If he would aim to a chemical, uh, to nerve gas, to sarin and chemical uh, uh, weapons, he shouldn't say that he aimed to gain them because he already got them for 40 years. Syria have got a chemical stockpile already from the beginning of the 1980s, of the 20th century. But he's speaking about aiming to gain a strategic balance with Israel. And I came to the conclusion that it's very likely that there is a tacit nuclear project uh, going on in Syria, like what happened with Libya, like what's going on with Iran. I convinced uh, my five friends in the subcommittee, in the inquiry committee, that it's very likely that uh, there is something going on in Syria, and that uh, if this is true, this is going to be a much bigger intelligence failure or fiasco from Israeli point of view that Syria, we are looking at Iran far away, but Syria here, extremely in our immediate proximity is trying to produce nuclear weapons and we fail to notice. And uh, they all, after several discussions, I managed to convince all my colleagues, five members of the Knesset that were uh, um, uh, with me at this uh, inquiry committee. And in uh, already, at, uh, I think, uh, April, something like April 2004, uh, we didn't, uh, before we concluded our secret report, I decided that this is too urgent, if I'm right, and I wrote a, a secret memorandum to then Prime Minister Sharon, Ariel Sharon, with copies to the uh, to, to the chief of staff of the IDF, with copy to the head of the IDF intelligence, and with copy to the head of the Mossad. And in this letter, I heard Sharon, I told Sharon that I think that 
we might be facing a, a dramatic intelligence failure, worse even than the one that took place in 90, in, 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 uh, in 1973, prior to the Yom Kippur War, and I urge him uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to refer to this issue and to call the uh, intelligence community and to discuss it with them as well. Few months later, we published our report. Our, uh, there was an open part of the report. Uh, we were the first. There were similar in investigation committee, committees in Britain and in the United States, but we were the first to establish such inquiry committee following the intelligence failure in Iraq, and we were the first to conclude our report. And in, uh, I think, April or May 2004, we have done, uh, we have made a press conference at the Knesset, and we published our findings with a lot of recommendations how to improve the Israeli intelligence community structure, how to improve the um, uh, the how to prepare intelligence officer in a better way, how to build a special program in, in, in universities in Israel uh, in order to educate our future intelligence um, uh, officers and commanders and many other recommendations and how to develop a special doctrine for uh, nuclear projects, a special intelligence doctrine aimed uh, specifically at nuclear, uh, clandestine nuclear projects. This was an open uh, public report. It got a huge coverage also in the United States, as remember in the New York Times, a very big article, a very big report. And two months later, we send our uh, a secret memorandum or secret report, only nine copies uh, to Prime Minister Sharon and to the IDF in intelligence services. And in this secret memorandum, there is a special part or chapter about the Syrian nuclear project in which the committee is warning uh, from a major intelligence failure with regard to Syria. We analyzed the very few uh, evidence, but also all the logic and the reasoning. And we analyzed what, uh, what can happen, how, how they might uh, hidden it, and why it's so difficult maybe to discover it. And now we are coming to the most dramatic uh, moment of this uh, struggle because uh, we heard from the IDF and from the Mossad that there is nothing there and they don't understand and they are looking at it for many years and nothing has been developed lately. And this is also the views of the American intelligence communities that there is nothing in Syria. So I decided, I was afraid that they are going to ignore the reports of after all only six members of the Knesset, six uh, parliamentarians, myself and five others, I decided to summon the heads of the IDF intelligence and the head of the Mossad every three months to the subcommittee 
only on this topic, the possibility of a nuclear, clandestine nuclear project in Syria. And they have to give answers to the subcommittee about what, if there are new findings and what they are doing about it and so on and so forth. So the first meeting that took place, I think in July or August, 2004, first came the head of the military intelligence, General Aaron Zevi Farkash, and two hours later, it was the time for the head of the Mossad, Meir Dagan. Uh, when uh, the head of the military intelligence with his officers came to the room, I presented again our thesis and why I'm so cautious and, and concerned about uh, what's going on in Syria. And he answered me something like that. That uh, Mr. Chairman, with all due respect, you have to be professional intelligence officer. You have to be professional on intelligence to understand that what you are telling us is entirely impossible. I am telling you as a head of the IDF intelligence, first, there is no clandestine military nuclear project in Syria. And secondly, I want to add that if there would be something like that in Syria, we would notice it immediately because we have such a, a, a good, excellent intelligence coverage of Syria. And unlike with other countries, unlike with Iran or Libya in Syria, we would see such a thing immediately if something like this would have happened. My answer to him was like this. Told him, um, uh, General Farkash, I appreciate you and your officers very much. And I myself not a professional uh, intelligence person. I was only a simple soldier in the Golani Infantry Brigade, only a sergeant uh, in the infantry uh, brigade in my military service. But it so happened that I'm doctor to philosophy. That Can I ask you to begin to wrap up, Dr. Steinitz, just because of time? Please begin to wrap up, thanks. Okay. I, so I told him, but it so happened that I, I'm not a professional intelligence officer. I was uh, just a simple uh, infantry sergeant, but I'm a professional philosopher. And as a professor, you need to be a professional philosopher to know how to doubt things and dogmas and, con and concepts. And as a philosopher, I doubt your self-confidence and I think that you are facing a terrible intelligence failure because something is going on in Syria and you fail to notice it and you don't want even to investigate it because you believe that you know everything. Then came the head of the Mossad, Meir Dagan, and his deputy, Tamir Pardo, to the room. And the story repeats itself, but their reaction was totally different. They also said that they noticed nothing in Syria and that they consulted following our report with their American and British and, and, and friends all over the world. And nobody saw something in Syria, but they cannot disregard the fact that the Knesset subcommittee on intelligence secret service is so confident that something is going on uh, in Syria. They are going to change their approach according to our recommendations. We gave some recommendation how it is hidden and therefore how we have to work in order to discover such a thing. It will take them a year or two 
to either verify or uh, to confirm or disconfirm what we are saying. Uh, I help him also to get some, uh, another, um, a little bit additional money from the treasury in order to prepare this special program to monitor Syria in a different way. And two years later, the Mossad has discovered the pictures uh, of the Kleindenstein nuclear uh, reactor in Deir Azur. And uh, half a year later, it was destroyed by the Israeli Air Force at uh, September 2007. I think this is a unique case, maybe in, in, not just in Israel history, but in general history, that the parliamentary committee was the first to point out in writings, in documents, uh, about a Kleindenstein nuclear project much before the intelligence services have noticed it. So this is a background for this story, and now I'm open for discussion. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Dr. Steitz. And if I may, I'm going to ask the first uh, question, which is uh, the following. What, in your view, does this episode, this fascinating episode, teach us about the decision-making process in Israel? And what, in your view, were the factors that led to the system missing this uh, information and the fact that you were there, we got it, but without your committee, it would have been missed. First, you know, we were the first to point out and, and almost to force uh, the Mossad because the IDF didn't want to listen to us. <laughs> the IDF totally disregarded us, but the Mossad took us uh, very seriously, took our report very seriously. But maybe it would be discovered also with our, our, without our intervention by, by case of chance or, or I don't know. I cannot say that without our uh, interference, it would be never discovered. And uh, secondly, look, uh, you know, our military intelligence, and I believe also all uh, uh, intelligence services were developed gradually. They have some missions and then came other missions. And yeah. our first mission was to, uh, during the independence war of Israel, was to monitor the uh, forces that are, uh, the Arab forces that invaded Israel from all over, from seven countries to try to kill this embryonic state. And they looked very closely, you know, the, their capabilities were very limited in, the, in 1947, 1948, but, they monitored the Palestinian population and the Palestinian militias and uh, uh, the progress of the Arab forces, the Egyptian army, the Jordanian, the Iraqi, the Syrian army, the Lebanese army into Israel to a certain extent. Then our services, secret services, developed with two main missions during several decades. One was to monitor the development of Arab armies around us, and the other was vis-a-vis -vis terrorist groups, vis-a-vis -vis PLO, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, later on Hezbollah, that were trying to attack uh, Israel or Israeli citizens. And this became a major task of the Israeli secret services, uh, to, defend our, to, to defend and to enable us to intercept terrorist attacks. And they did excellent job. Uh, also today, we manage to intercept, I believe, 
95% of the attack, of, of the plot, of the terrorist plot against Israel before they take place, even maybe more than 95%. This is really remarkable. But then came the issue of non-conventional weapons, especially nuclear weapons. This is totally different story in my view. Because you know, if I'll give you an example to do with Iraq, for example. We knew very well how many tanks and how many airplanes Saddam Hussein have got prior to the American war in Iraq in 2003. Because usually when country acquire, even a dictator is buying or producing tanks and, and armored uh, vehicles and, and airplanes and helicopters, he presents them. In, 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 you know, he exposed them in military exercises or in military marches, and nobody's... But when somebody like Saddam Hussein is developing chemical weapons, he is very careful to try to hide it because it's totally illegal. All the more so with regard to nuclear weapon, since it's totally illegal for Iran, for Syria, for Libya, for for other countries, totally viola total violation of the NPT. And since it might bring a very strong international sanctions and isolation, there are enormous attempts to hide uh, a, 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 a nuclear projects totally. And sometimes even to build a special mechanism that will, will deal with it separately from the regular defense establishment. Therefore, this is a, a unique task yeah, with different difficulties that you have to uh, try to resolve. And therefore, you need a specific doctrine. It's not good to take the regular intelligence doctrine that you prepare to monitor other armies and to say this is good also for nuclear projects. Can I ask it's then a totally different question. story? So it brings you to a second question of mine, which is, I guess, of natural follow on. As a result of what happened that you've described to us about the Syrian project and your discovery of it, was some mechanism created in the Israeli system to enable to make sure that information like yours and insights like yours would come in, you know, in a in a subsequent uh, example? Was something changed in the system as a result of this episode? I'm unable to elaborate too much about this. <laughs> I can tell you that the Mossad immediately following our report, you know, they, they not only began to, uh, to try to, to adapt a different approach vis-a-vis -vis Syria, but they really changed the doctrine and even the priorities, because we also put a new set of priorities. We said, although it's sometimes less urgent than to, to prevent a terrorist attack here or to intercept a, a terrorist group there, nuclear projects, in the Middle East or in the Near East should be our first priority. Yeah, this should get first priority, although some other things looks more urgent sometimes. The Mossad immediately adopted several of our uh, secret recommendations. And I believe one can say that they made some remedies to, to their intelligence doctrine. With the IDF, it's took longer, but I can tell you first, I'm not quiet at all. Uh, it might repeat itself. 
And second, yeah, uh, following this case, there were several changes, significant changes that have been made both in the Mossad and both in the IDF intelligence. I'm un unable to elaborate more, but yeah, nowadays I can say that although it's beginning by the way, especially in the IDF, they were furious that we are mm -hmm. trying to, to teach them uh, intelligence. We didn't, yeah, but we were trying to point to some possible failures. But at the end of the day, it took several years and they took it, uh, at the end of the day, they took it seriously. And Thanks. I believe so we are in a better position today, although such ignorance and such failures can repeat themselves. Mm -hmm. Thanks. So I'm going to read out a couple of questions from audience members now uh, for you to relate to. And the first one is from Larry Greenberg, who uh, writes the following. There is no question that the Iranian nuclear bomb program is Syria on steroids. Even elements of it are unknown. What lessons have been learned that can be applied to the neutralization or destruction of the Iranian uh, threat or Iranian uh, project? Look, it's totally different situation. Of course, Iran is much stronger, bigger, and more dangerous countries than Syria or Libya. And if Iran will get nuclear, this is a devastating state for Israel's future. But this is also will produce immediate threat to Europe and later on to the United States because they are eager also to develop intercontinental ballistic missiles that once they will get nuclear, will. Uh, uh, be capable of carrying uh, uh, nuclear bombs directly to uh, New York or Washington. This is on their agenda. They are working on it. Also, on, uh, they called it satellite launchers. But this is just a, a, a it's, it's, it disguised like satellite project, satellite launching projects, but actually it's intercontinental ballistic missiles. That's the aim of the project. But even more than that, if Iran will get nuclear, this is the end of the NPT, of the Non-Proliferation Treaty or the Non-Proliferation Regime. Look, this was an American policy since the 1960s to stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons around the globe. And it was quite successful policy so far. It's true that we have had to destroy two nuclear projects in Syria and Iraq, but also the project in Libya was dismantled and other countries were not trying to violate the NPT. And the world is, is relatively safe. But unlike North Korea, you know, North Korea have got nuclear weapons. This is terrible. But Japan and South Korea didn't follow because they trust the United States deterrence and backing, and the, so far at least, they didn't start to produce their own nuclear weapons in order to balance or to threaten North Korea, okay? With Iran, it's going to be totally different. Once Iran will have nuclear weapon, immediately Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Algier, and maybe also the Emirates will follow. So this is going to be the end of the global uh, uh, nuclear uh, non-proliferation regime. It's going to be a fatal blow to the American approach, to the American strategy for the last 70 years. 
So this is going to be devastating for Israel, for the Middle East, but for the entire world. And uh, I think that the US uh, policy of non-proliferation was uh, a major issue in the past, and it should remain a major issue in the United States. And uh, it doesn't seem so uh, nowadays that this is, this is a number one mission of, of the Western world under the leadership of the United States. Uh, another thing that I'm learning is the difference between partial dismantlement of nuclear project and total dismantlement. Because look, in three countries in the Middle East, it's end up with total dismantlement. In Syria, we destroyed the nuclear project totally. They never resumed it. They didn't try even because they realized that they are exposed. And if we did it once, probably we will repeat it if necessary. So why spending several billion dollars if it's doomed to fail? In Iraq, when we destroyed the Iraqi, the Iraqi nuclear reactor in, I think it was 1982, people say now Saddam Hussein, 1981, people, some people were saying he have enough money, Saddam Hussein, enough petrodollarium, he will try again. He never really tried again because he realized that he cannot hide it, that we will discover it and probably will destroy it again. And he didn't, uh, you know, so. And in Libya, it was dismantled by, uh, by, by, uh, with an agreement with America and Britain. But the dismantlement was total dismantlement. Everything was dismantled and taken away taken away from Libya. They never tried to rebuild it. And in North Korea, previous agreements, because you have had previous agreement with North Korea, were about freezing, about partial dismantlement. And look what happened. Mm. When you are satisfied with partial dismantlement or, or, or partial stopping, the temptation, because you still have some or most of your infrastructure, the temptation to resume one day, why you spend so much money and the infrastructure is still there is, is enormous. The same with Iran. You know, if, if to conclude the debate, the arguments that we have had vis-a-vis -vis the United States and all the P5 plus one, just seven years ago, before the nuclear agreement, the JCPOA, we said that a good agreement with Iran should end with total dismantlement of the Iranian nuclear infrastructure for good, forever. And uh, the American approach was that we can satisfy with partial dismantlement of only several elements in the program for 10 or 15 years. So, uh, what we see today is that the Iranians are enriching uranium to 60%. They never reached to such high levels. This is already very significant level before, only last year. By the way, Trump left the agreement at 2018. They never mm -hmm. dared to enrich uranium to high level, only last year. For three years, they avoided it. They didn't dare to cross the 20% threshold, only last year. And uh, you can clearly see that if you are dealing with country like Iran or North Korea, and you want an agreement or, or, or 
a destruction to, to prevail, yeah, you need a total dismantlement, either through agreement right, yeah. or by brute force. Thanks. One last question I think we'll have time for from Alfred uh, Beagle, who uh, asks, or Beigel, who asks, my reading of past reporting indicates the US initially tipped off Israel that something unusual was taking place in Syria about five years before Israel's destruction of the nuclear facility. Could you comment on this? Well, in a very general manner. <laughs> I don't want to comment on specific intelligence uh, uh, issues. There were, as I mentioned before, there were here and there some, some pieces of data that, you know, could raise some questions or, or some uh, uh, could cause somebody to wonder. But in reality, you know, if to sum up, nobody took it seriously. Uh, and the best evidence for it is that the head of the military intelligence, General Aaron Zevi Farkash, by the way, a very smart person, a very professional officer. I have nothing against him. But when he was asked by the subcommittee at 2000, at summer of 2004, the answer was, I am telling you as the head of the IDF intelligence that there is no nuclear, a clandestine nuclear project in Syria. You need to be a professional intelligence to understand that this is impossible. First, that it's impossible that there will be something like there. And second is that if it would happen, we would see it immediately. It would pop up immediately in, because we have such an excellent coverage. So this is saying everything. Of course, there were here and there some pieces that one should ask, yeah, what does that, that mean? But nobody in the United States or in Israel or in Europe said it's probable, it's highly probable that there is a military nuclear project in Syria until uh, the subcommittee have done it in, 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 in several documents in 2004. It's a fascinating subject, Dr. Steinitz, and thanks very much and very profoundly for giving us these insights. I'm afraid we're basically out of time. We could probably carry on asking about this a lot. This is a subject the issue of national security decision making in Israel, which, as you may know, the Middle East Forum is is very interested in, and we'll certainly be interested in hearing more from you. I'm sure in different forums and different contexts at a later date. But thanks very much for this uh, this opportunity, and I think that uh, Stacy is going to come on to wrap things up. So thanks. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you, and all the best to you and to the all the listeners. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you, Dr. Steinitz, for joining us today and for Jonathan Spire Thank for you. moderating. Bye-bye. Uh, for our viewers, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.